welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny and I'm a research professor of national security studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. It's Friday, June 2nd, 2023. With Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia in the offing, Moscow appears eager to strengthen relations with Beijing. Last week, Russia's prime minister signed a set of agreements with China during a trip to Beijing, describing bilateral ties at an unprecedented high. The agreements addressed deepening investment, cooperation in trade services, a pact on export of agricultural products to China, and another on sports cooperation. Perhaps more importantly, Russia's energy shipments to China are projected to grow 40% this year, and the two countries are discussing technological equipment supplies to Russia. Given all this, there's nobody better for us to chat with than my colleague, Dr. Bob Hamilton. Bob is the research professor of Eurasian Studies here at SSI. He's working on a book project regarding the Sino-Russian relationship, and he's recently published an essay on this very topic with the Foreign Policy Research Institute, or FPRI. So, Bob, welcome. John, uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, Bob, with the Ukrainian counteroffensive perhaps underway already or maybe soon to be underway, I think there's increasing concern that Russia is going to be looking to China as its chief weapons supplier in the future. Now, we know Beijing is walking a very fine line, but before we dive into the likelihood of Beijing acting as uh, what I and perhaps others call an arsenal of authoritarianism, tell us about the state of this debate on the PRC-Russia relationship. Sure. So um, the, both in the policy and the scholarly or academic worlds, the debate uh, has broken down into two camps, at least since about 2008, when Bobo Lo uh, wrote his book called Axis of Convenience. Uh, and the, the, the two camps are strategic partnership and axis of convenience. The debate is whether Russia and China are true strategic partners uh, and cooperate broadly across uh, many areas of the world and using uh, many instruments of power or statecraft, or whether it's just an axis of convenience between them. And the only thing really driving them together is shared resistance to what they call U.S. hegemony. So my argument is that this is a useful simplification, this bumper stickerization of the relationship, but it doesn't capture the complexity or the dynamism of the relationship, which is changing all the time and is different in different parts of the world. So. There are parts of the world where China and Russia cooperate very effectively. There are other parts of the world where they sort of compartmentalize their relationship. In other words, China does its thing, Russia does its thing. They're generally aware of what the other is doing, uh, but they're neither cooperating nor competing. Uh, and then there are, there are areas, like any two states, uh, where they are in competition. The, the question is, can the competition remain friendly as it generally does when Western liberal democracies compete economically or for diplomatic influence. Uh, so uh, that's the that's the state of the uh, debate on the relationship. Uh, and and my, my view is that while useful, it doesn't really capture, uh, you know, the nuance of the relationship between Beijing and Moscow. 
the state of the debate now is sort of uh, between these two maybe extremes, you might say, right, of, of cooperation, strategic partnership versus uh, just a marriage of convenience or a partnership of convenience. And you're suggesting that that doesn't provide enough nuance, enough detail. So what are you suggesting uh, is a better approach to examine this region by region, if you will? So what I would argue is that uh, if we study their interaction in regions of the world where both have important interests at stake, we'll learn things about the relationship that the strategic partnership axis of convenience narrative doesn't really show us. And so in, in my research thus far on this book project, uh, four regions have emerged as key, Africa, the Central Asian states, Eastern Europe, and East Asia. And they're, they're important for different reasons. The first two, Africa and Central Asia, they test the hypothesis that the U.S. is the binding agent in the Russia-China relationship. In other words, that shared resistance to the U.S. pushes Beijing and Moscow together. And the reason Africa and Central Asia are interesting here is that the U.S. footprint in those regions is fairly light compared to many other parts of the world. So if China and Russia can cooperate in Central Asia and Africa, in regions where the uh, U.S. presence is smaller, then maybe resistance to the U.S. is not the main driver of their ties. So it tests that hypothesis that, uh, hey, if you take us out of the equation, they'll compete. In Eastern Europe and East Asia, uh, the dynamic is very different. In both of these regions, either Russia or China is locked in a competition with the U.S. where the U.S. and either Russia or China argue that they have vital interests at stake. In Eastern Europe, obviously, it's the U.S. and Russia locked in a strategic competition, which is playing out right now uh, through the Ukraine war. Uh, and then in East Asia, the U.S. and China are locked in a strategic competition uh, where both claim to have vital interests at stake. So to me, what makes these regions interesting is we need to look at how China reacts to the U.S.-Russian competition in Eastern Europe and how Russia reacts to the China-U.S. competition in East Asia. You mentioned earlier that if China provides material military support to Russia, it knows it will trigger secondary sanctions, that secondary sanctions by the U.S. will be triggered against China. So if it does that, and at this point it hasn't, I think the U.S. intelligence assessment is that Beijing has considered it but has not provided any material military support. So how China reacts to this, what we know is a Russian request uh, for, for actual military support will tell us a lot about the relationship. Similarly, how Russia reacts to, to if the China-U.S. competition escalates in East Asia, how Russia reacts to that will tell us a lot about the relationship. All right. Well, let's let's dive into the details here. I want to ask you to walk us through these different these four regions you've outlined. And I think you've made a, a pretty good case for why uh, for, for your own case selection. Right. Why do you look at these four regions? So let's start with Central Asia, because I think from at least Washington's perspective, the potential for competition between China and Russia in this region is very high. That is, you've got this enduring, perhaps enduring, but this historical relationship between the region and Moscow uh, from Soviet days and maybe even before. Uh, and yet you also have this sort of centripetal gravity of the Chinese economy that may be drawing these countries closer and closer to Beijing. And the U.S. could therefore play maybe a, a spoiler role in this region. So What's your sense of the research you've done so far? What are you seeing regarding Chinese and Russian collaboration or cooperation in Central Asia? Sure. So first, um, I'm I'm not a proponent of the U.S. trying to play a, a spoiler role in Central Asia or anywhere else. I think as soon as we insert ourselves into the equation, it drives Russia and China together. 
Instead, what I think we should do in Central Asia, and we, we have done done this uh, in a, a few years ago, it was under the Trump administration, but we produced a strategy for Central Asia. The US should define our interests, the type and intensity of interest uh, in Central Asia that it has, and then pursue them. Knowing really that Russia and China probably have higher order interests at stake there and are going to have a more uh, a more robust presence across the instruments of power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. Um, so, but trying intentionally to drive Russia and China apart, I think is more likely to drive them together. So the best characterization of the China-Russia relationship in Central Asia that I've seen uh, is, is Sheriff and the Banker. And it came from, I think it was a War on the Rocks article a few years ago. In other words, Russia is the security provider and China is interested in economic development, infrastructure, built and road initiative projects. And for a long time, that worked fairly well. Russia was because Russia has long seen Central Asia as critical to its security and as one of the biggest potential threats to its security because of things like uh, Islamic extremism, terrorism. Uh, it, and it's seen Central Asia along with the Caucasus as sort of its own soft underbelly. Uh, so it's been very interested in security, regime stability. Uh, you remember a month before the Ukraine war, at the request of uh, the Kazakh government, uh, Russia sent a uh, CSTO peacekeeping force to Kazakhstan to quell some internal unrest. Uh, and it has cultivated close relationships with the mostly authoritarian governments in Central Asia, focused on stability. China's interests have been mostly economic. That may be changing. We see China's first military base outside its borders uh, was set up in Tajikistan a few years ago. It's to this point, it's not a robust military base. It's the People's Armed Police, not the not the People's Liberation Army. Uh, but nevertheless, China appears to be willing to take more of a security role in Central Asia, probably to protect its economic interests there, which are pretty significant. And then the final thing I would say is recently both Putin and Xi Jinping met with the leaders of the Central Asian states without the other there. So they didn't meet uh, through a, a Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit or anything like that. It was it was Putin and the Central Asian states leaders and then Xi Jinping. Uh, so that's interesting, worth watching that they're both pursuing their own diplomat diplomatic initiatives in Central Asia uh, without the other, but I don't think we should overreact to that and, and and see it as a sign of some sort of diplomatic split. Okay, so it almost sounds like there's there's a uh, a rather convenient, at least for now, division of labor, if you will, in Central Asia. Uh, maybe that's not the the right phrase, and it sounds like it's certainly evolving. But what do you see occurring in Africa? You grouped the case of Africa with Central Asia, and when you laid out the uh, the regions of the world you're looking at. Is there a similar dynamic here? Is there kind of a uh, uh, what a, a division of labor, if you will, the banker and the sheriff, or is there some other dynamic at play in Africa? It's a little different. Um, there are some similarities. Uh, the U.S. the U.S. footprint, the U.S. presence is is fairly light as it is in Central Asia. But I also think Russia and China have lower order interests at stake in Africa, at least in the security and diplomatic. Uh, realm, lower order interests at stake than they do in Central Asia. For them, for both, Central Asia is sort of their backyard politically uh, and, and security-wise, and uh, you know they both are, are contiguous geographically with Central Asia in a way they're not with Africa. So probably lower order interests at stake for Russia and China, but nevertheless, significant interests uh, for both, especially in the economic 
realm and economic instruments. So there's a lot of potential, uh, economic potential in Africa that Russia and China understand. So the difference I would say for Russia is in Central Asia, it has a genuine interest in political stability, deploys its own military forces there to help achieve it. In Africa, Russia's presence quite literally is mercenary. It's in the form of the Wagner Group, uh, the Yevgeny Prigozhin-led uh, uh, private military corporation that's recently been fighting, doing a lot of fighting in Ukraine, but it's been in Africa for years. What the Wagner Group does in Africa essentially is regime protection, counterterrorism, but it's primarily interested in securing access to natural resources for profit. So often it will provide regime protection or will engage in what it calls counterterrorism operations but the payment is often in uh, rights to mineral resources and other natural resources in Africa. So it's a very instrumental approach to Africa. Russia's activity in Africa is useful if it undermines Western influence and makes money. Different from Central Asia, where I think Russia's, uh, Russia's interest, Russia has a genuine interest in stability because stability of that region is seen as directly affecting stability in Russia. So China has been a huge investor in African infrastructure. Um, I recently found some from some data between 2013 and 2018, almost 45% of total Chinese development aid went to Africa. That may be changing as many African countries have reached what China sees as the limit of their sustainable debt load. So African, I'm sorry, Chinese uh, in infrastructure investment uh, in Africa has actually been declining now for a couple of years, possibly to secure its infrastructure investment and its economic investment in Africa. The Chinese have opened a base in Djibouti, and there are persistent rumors of a Chinese base planned in Equatorial Guinea on the west coast of Africa. So uh, Djibouti was, I believe, the second after Tajikistan, the second Chinese military base outside their borders. Equatorial Guinea would be the third. But yeah, to this point, there seems to have been, uh, as in Central Asia, a, a, a fairly efficient and collaborative division of labor between them. Uh, but we always need to look at, at does the is the situation changing? China does appear in both regions to be investing more uh, in security, uh, probably to protect its economic investments. The question is, how does Russia respond to that? Let's turn now, Bob, to the other two cases that you examine, um, Eastern Europe and East Asia, starting first with Eastern Europe. It seems to me, as somebody that studies Europe, that there's a good potential for Beijing and Moscow to act pretty collaboratively in this region. Is this what you found? Well, in Eastern Europe, as I said earlier, Russia and the U.S. are locked in a struggle where both have vital interests at stake. Russia has even said the Ukraine war is existential for it. So the Ukraine war is the, is the crucible of the China-Russia relationship. If China provides tangible military assistance to Russia and Ukraine, I think we can argue that this relationship truly is the strategic partnership that China has thrown its lot in with Russia, understands that it will pay an economic price, uh, and has is all in on a Russian victory in Ukraine and a remaking of the European security order where Russia, its partner, uh, has a much greater role. Now, to this point, China has provided rhetorical support, but no, no military material support to Russia. And has also made statements about the need to respect sovereignty and territorial integrity, which can be seen as a very thinly veiled critique of Russia's attempt to dismember Ukraine. China, of course, has its own issues with sovereignty and territorial integrity, right? It considers it's it's always very uh, worried about Xinjiang. It's very prickly about uh, Western criticism of its human rights record there. 
recently Hong Kong, not that recently, but Hong Kong is now back under uh, Beijing's control and has been for a while. Uh, but it's always China is always worried about Western criticism of its activities in Hong Kong. And then, of course, there's the Taiwan question. So uh, it's not surprising that China highlights things like sovereignty and territorial integrity in its approach to Ukraine. But it is interesting uh, in, in that that is a fairly direct and not that thinly veiled criticism of Russia's attempt to dismember Ukraine. All right, now let's turn to East Asia. Is this, you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan. What do we see, what do you see in East Asia? It's, it's, is it simply a mirror image of what's playing out in Eastern Europe? Uh, in, in many ways it is, yeah. I think, um, so there, the US and China are locked in a struggle, a peaceful struggle for influence. Uh, they're competing, peaceful to this point, hopefully it stays peaceful, but uh, both claim to have vital interests at stake. The U.S. has security partnership and, and even uh, legal alliance commitments uh, to some uh, of the countries that in, in the region with which China has very difficult relations. So uh, if things escalate in East Asia, and it doesn't even have to be a military escalation, but if the competition between the U.S. and China gets more intense and escalates, uh, I think we need to look at how Russia responds. I don't think Russia is in a position to assist China in the way that China is in a position to assist Russia in Eastern Europe, uh, because China doesn't need anything up from Russia right now other than rhetorical support. Uh, and uh, you know they do they do periodic naval and other military exercises together. Uh, so anyway, the East Asia is is the region I think that where. We need to look at the future. And right now, there's not as much happening there that will tell us about the trajectory of the relationship. But as things develop there, and the US competition with China does appear to be intensifying and accelerating. So we need to look at how Russia responds to that. Uh, and it will tell us a good bit about how Russia sees uh, its relationship with China. All right, Bob, let me, let me ask you now my final question for you. Uh, what do you think are the policy implications of all this for Washington? Now, you mentioned earlier in our podcast that you did not think the U.S. should be playing the role of spoiler in any of these regions or um, you know, triangulating, as uh, we might have done perhaps during the Cold War between uh, Beijing and Moscow. But in your research, do you have any preliminary findings regarding recommendations? Is, is it too early to say things we should be doing? Uh regarding what you're finding? So, right, John, I'll reiterate what I said earlier. Certainly trying to drive a wedge or play the spoiler uh, between Beijing and Moscow is not likely to to be in the interest of the U.S. because it's what, what it really is like more likely to do uh, is drive them together. Um, but for as far as preliminary conclusions, what I think I've seen is on their own, the differences in their policies and their preferences and their interests in key regions of the world uh, might drive them apart or a, at a minimum limit their cooperation. Uh, if that happens, we should be prepared to adjust to the new normal. We should not insert ourselves into the equation to try to accelerate that process. What I think we should be doing is, is looking at, at these regions, these four regions, and looking for areas of convergence and divergence. Like like any bilateral relationship, there are certain things they agree on and there are certain things that they that they disagree on. I use the 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 framework of cooperate, compartmentalize, and compete. So 
we should be looking for areas where they where they are competing and we should be trying to understand how that competition is likely to develop this gets back to one of the one of the other debates in political science about um, regime type and uh, and competition right there's this idea that well authoritarian regimes um, they can't cooperate they eventually they 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 have a naked pursuit of hardcore national interests and they eventually any two authoritarian regimes will eventually cooperate or i'm sorry will eventually compete uh, with each other uh, whereas democracies eat they can manage areas of divergence and competition and still have a, a a productive and even friendly relationship relationship so uh, how the relationship between russia and china develops in terms of areas where they compete i think will also tell us a lot about this is there a democratic piece only or is there also an authoritarian piece? So from the political science perspective, uh, I think there are lessons to be learned there, too. Well, Bob, it's a fascinating topic. It's an excellent essay. I'll again refer our listeners to your recently published essay at FPRI. And uh, yeah, Bob, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing the uh, the book that will eventually emerge from this research. It's been my pleasure, John. I've enjoyed the, com- the, the uh, conversation a lot. And thanks for the invitation. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.